Hi, everybody. Welcome to the 10th Down the Hatch podcast, the podcast about swallowing. I'm your host, Ianessa Humbert, and as usual, I'm joined with my sidekick and SLP extraordinaire and doctoral student, Alicia Vogts. This 10th installment focuses on a growing concern in our field, that is, formal academic and clinical training and education of clinicians who will be managing dysphagia. How prepared did you feel for treating swallowing impairments upon completing your master's degree? Are you currently a graduate student who is feeling confident or uncertain about your preparedness? Well, our guests are Rinki Verandani Desai, a practicing SLP who has joined us before, and new to Down the Hatch is Andre Gaborio, a recent graduate student who is transitioning to his CFY. They will weigh in on the issue of formal education of dysphagia for clinicians, and we start with introductions, reflections of each of our own preparedness, and then end with problems and possible solutions for the issue. Thanks for joining us, and I hope you enjoy the discussion. This is Rinki Barandani Desai. I'm a speech-language pathologist originally from India. I'm currently working in long-term care for health pro rehabilitation in Rochester, New York. Hi, I'm Andre Gaborio. I'm a recent graduate from the University of Florida, previous student of Dr. Humbert, and I'm just going to be employed soon at the VA here in Gainesville. And I'm Alicia, again, a PhD student here at the University of Florida under Dr. Humbert and speech pathologist. And I am Dr. Humbert, and that's all I have to say about myself right now, because <laughs> I'm a little bit jet-lagged. Okay. Rinky, you are joining us by phone, and we're very grateful uh-huh. that you're willing to do that. This was your idea to talk about whether or not people are actually well-trained in formal education for dysphagia management. So do you want to start the conversation? Okay. So... Um... ASHA conducts an SLP healthcare survey where they have um, practicing clinicians talk about their practice settings, the populations they're working with. And in 2015, they published a 10-year paper that kind of laid out all the characteristics of what medical SLPs were doing for a decade. And from 2005 to 2015, 87% of clinicians indicated that they were the primary providers of swallowing services in their facilities across the lifespan. And more than half of them, more than 55% of them, said they spend their time um, with swallowing disorders, followed by cognition and language and motor speech. So we started to realize that the graduate curriculum in swallowing was uh, provided as a model in 2006, but then professors and instructors kind of can use that and use it as they want. There's no consistency in terms of what one graduate dysphagia curriculum looks like from another, and there's also no there's no criteria that they have to meet as long as they are just meeting those core, uh, even the core competencies are not really described. So when we have such a large population of clinicians working with swallowing disorders, and we don't even have mandatory coursework, some, some places have one course, others have two, we don't even have any consistency in what graduate training in dysphagia looks like, there's obviously something missing. There's a huge imbalance, and that's what's very concerning. 
when right. we start graduating and working with patients. So essentially, it sounds like what you're saying is, while we're responsible for the big nine, the big nine are nine different subject areas that ASHA mandates that we need to have adequate coverage of, and dysphagia or swallowing is one of those. Folks in healthcare settings, obviously this does not include people in a primarily an education-based setting with kids, but folks in a healthcare setting, among all the things that they could be working on, language, speech, voice, cognition, swallowing seems to take the vast majority of their time. And part of the reason is that that is a true medical problem that impacts somebody's livelihood while in the hospital. Not that cognition can impact someone's livelihood and lead to falls, et cetera. But in terms of taking medications and even getting discharged in the first place, sometimes you gotta get the swallowing under control. Um, and so for those reasons, the importance of swallowing is on the hierarchy tends to be high, but sounds like what you're saying is in terms of whether or not we are well prepared and dysphagia is, is disproportionately low in terms of preparation, even though it's disproportionately high in terms of practice patterns. Is that fair to say? That's absolutely correct, yes. What's interesting is when you take those numbers and you start honing in on clinicians that work specifically in acute care or acute rehab, those numbers actually go up to above 80%, 85% that work with patients who have dysphagia. So I think that even talking about the over half 55% is actually lowballing it quite mm -hmm. a bit because if you really start looking at these medical settings, really dysphagia is pretty much all that we do. <laughs> and that's from my own experience too, Rinky. I'm sure you can weigh in on your practice that, you know, how much of your day do you spend treating patients with dysphagia? Yeah, and acute care was much higher. I would say it was even as high as 90%. But even in long-term care, it's definitely over 70%. And we know what the consequences of dysphagia are. So if someone who is not competent or doesn't feel well-trained is out there working with these patients and not doing a good job at it just because they don't feel confident, this is not only affecting quality of life, like 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 Dr. Humbert said, it's, it can lead to malnutrition, dehydration, rehospitalization, you know, aspiration pneumonia, we're putting them on modified diets, the consequences are very significant and severe. So, so our training can impact all of that. Yeah, I was just thinking, it feels like, since you're talking about there's a lack of standardization in education, it's kind of reflective within the paperwork and, and thought process throughout. Um, there's this lack of standardization, which we're talking about, I've heard in this podcast plenty of times, the MBSIMP, a standardization of, of how to communicate to one another, a standardization of thought process. And if there's no standardization, as to how to educate the students, how is that then going to translate over into the real world? Right, so if I understand what you're saying, we can talk about standardization of practice, but if we don't have standardization of formal education, right. it's no wonder it's harem scarum and you right. know all kinds of craziness <laughs> happening in the clinic. I love how we're just like going right to the core of the problem. We're not like easing <laughs> in. If this is the standard of practice that most, what was your survey said, 61% of respondents did not feel adequately prepared in the practice area of their dysphagia after completion of their graduate program, and only 5.5% of respondents reported feeling very competent in dysphagia upon graduation. That suggests to me that many people who are practicing are um, faking it till they make it, which is something people say all the time, you gotta fake it till you make it, but what have the consequences been? Well, here's, here's why we get away with it. It's a downstream effect, and there's a delayed response. So I think that 
when somebody is not adequately managed from a dysphagia management perspective, say for example, they are on a diet they're not supposed to be on, they're misdiagnosed, they're discharged when they shouldn't be, there's a lot of different things that can happen, the consequences are not immediate. They don't get aspiration pneumonia 10 minutes later and mm-hmm. come back into the hospital. It's not, and an, it's, it's not an infection and sepsis. Exactly. Right? It's so, not a fall. Right. So yeah. can we, because I feel us going into that stream of this is why we have problems, but we're here to talk about formal education. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to start with you, Alicia, um, and then we can go to Rinky and Andre and I'll talk <clears throat> too. And mm-hmm. tell us the things that you feel like you definitely got very well. And then tell us the things that you felt like once you hit the floor, you were like, crap, I don't know anything about that. Mm-hmm. So just a little bit of background. I took a dysphagia course in 2008, um, so almost 10 years ago. So this is after ASHA mandated that mm-hmm. it does need to be in the curriculum, okay? Yep. Um, and I had a good dysphagia professor. I had Dr. Martin Brodsky, who in his research career does specialize in dysphagia. So I was very fortunate in that sense. I know a lot of people out there don't always get an instructor for dysphagia that specializes in dysphagia. Sometimes it bleeds over from voice or different areas. So I was very lucky in that sense. And I did also, again, very lucky, was able to take an advanced dysphagia course by Dr. Barbara Sonis. Um, the semester after that. So I was probably, in my opinion, on the higher end of being prepared in terms of what's the expectation in, in the graduate curriculum. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's one of those things where I remember hearing a lot in grad school, you'll see this in your CFY, you'll learn this in your CFY, you'll get experience in this because I had a lot of didactic experience with I had an idea of what dysphagia looked like, but I'd actually never seen a patient until my last semester of graduate school. Um, and it's one of those things where you don't know what you don't know, mm-hmm. right? So it was my, I didn't have any dysphagia in undergrad, I didn't have anything else besides these courses, and you don't have any benchmark of what you're supposed to know, how much you're supposed to know, and you take it all in and you're like, okay. And then you go into the real world and you start seeing patients and you realize, wow, I learned cranial nerves really well mm-hmm. in how to test them, but did I know what to do with it as well? Not so much. Yeah, now that I see it, what do I do with this information? How does it translate okay. to diet or to treatment? Exactly. Okay, that's um, good. I, I would say what I knew the best was how to identi- identify signs and symptoms of aspiration at the bedside and how to grossly look for pathophysiology in fluoro. And that's a good start, actually. And that's a good start. Yeah. Um, I learned nothing of how medicine impacted dysphagia. Um, so I knew nothing of, okay, we know patients who have stroke have dysphagia, and you learn a little bit about the indirect, direct pathways, cortex, brainstem, um, and how a stroke could impact those pathways. Mm -hmm. But when you start getting patients that have electrolyte imbalances, that have sepsis, that have infections, that have dysphagia, I was like, what? Mm -hmm. (laughs) I had no idea because I didn't realize how much I needed to understand medicine to be able to best treat my patients. Mm -hmm. I had no clue. Mm -hmm. So it was really bridging from just 
straight material to application and really being able to manage patients was, I mean, when I first started seeing patients, it was completely overwhelming. Um, so that was my experience and it really didn't hit me in the face until I started honestly working with Dr. Humbert who knows physiology and um, pathophysiology of differential diagnosis of different swallowing pathophysiologies that I was like, oh my God, I had no idea. Um, some of these more intricate timing um, pathophysiologies that patients can have, I'd never learned about any of these things. Like a, just this moment in my career when I was looking at a patient that was having difficulty with airway protection and all I had known about how to look at airway protection was did the laryngeal vestibule close or did it not? And that was sort of the extent of it. It was either adequate or inadequate and that was how I judged it. And Dr. Humbert said to me, well, airway closure is fine. It closes, but it's delayed. And I was like, what? <laughs> delayed. And she was like, yeah, like it, the signal from when the highway bursts, it's not closing fast enough. And look at the, and we watched the video and I was like, that meme where that guy is like, where his mind is blown. <laughs> I was like, I didn't even realize that that was an impairment. And I've, you don't know, you don't know. You don't yeah. know how to look for it if you don't know it's a thing. And that just opened up my whole world of like, if I don't know that, which at the time seemed basic, what else do I not know? Yeah. And it was just very interesting. And let me, mind you, this was like four years after I've been seeing patients. Mm -hmm. So. All right. Well, who's next? Who wants to tell us their uh, testimony? I guess I'll go next. I, I, when I first started grad school, I didn't even know there was such a thing as dysphagia. I came in going, yeah, I just want to work with language. That's great. And then uh, someone from the Shantz Hospital came in and said, hey, we work with people and they have trouble swallowing. <laughs> when said, now was this grad or undergrad? That, my, this was in preview for grad school. Oh, I had so already, when did I, I meet you outside of the grocery store when my, do you remember that? <laughs> yes, I remember. It was probably two or three months after that. Okay. And I immediately just said, that's what I'm gonna do. Mm. Like I want to. I want to do the swallowing. Do the swallowing. I want to do the swallowing. Getting in there. Getting in there. <laughs> um, and so you know we don't have our this here at UF we don't have our swallowing course until the second semester. Yeah. But I kept asking and I kept prodding and they put me in acute care my first semester. So I got the I got the nice uh, fortune of knowing what to do but not knowing why I'm doing it. Mm. So I kind of got told a lot of things and whether or not those were correct I'm not gonna. Sure. Sure. Um, you know, but. I, not to toot your horn here, uh, but uh, toot. No, <laughs> she won't mind. I, she won't, no, I, I, I feel I, I did get an uh, adequate education as to how to think. That was really one of the the best things that came that came out of that course. And you know, having gone to CTDM, the critical um, thinking and dysphagia management, that was also uh, super helpful as well. Just going, well, know what you don't know, and then question what you do know. Right. Um, why are we doing it? So you know, cervical auscultation is that. Why do we use that? Is that a thing? Is that a thing? <laughs> Pulse ox, is that a thing? Yeah. So do you feel prepared, Andre? Like you're starting the VA this summer um, as a CFY. Do you feel prepared and ready to go see patients with dysphagia to diagnose pathophysiology, provide treatment, 
um, you know, put them on a treatment protocol? How confident do you feel to just like go ahead and do so that? So if I had the question of from on a scale of zero to ten, like ten being the most confident, I'd probably say seven. I'm probably oh, that's I, good for you. Yeah, that's feel, good. I feel really, I feel really good. But there's always those things that you've never seen before. Yeah, and you've had mm -hmm. some really strong clinical placements, which right. is another component of graduate yeah. education, isn't right. it? I'm yeah. very fortunate with that. Um, I mean, even having infant uh, dysphagia uh, placements as well. So having all of that, it's mostly there's a lot of treatments that I don't even know. Mm -hmm. I just found out about the Mc, McNeil dysphagia. Mm -hmm. uh, so what, what is this? Yeah. Or yeah. Fraser Free. I just mm -hmm. learned about mm -hmm. that. When mm -hmm. is that appropriate? When is it mm -hmm. not? Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of things I just go, what treatments do I not even know about? Right. Or what which ones are just outdated but are mm -hmm. still being used and, right. and being yeah. repackaged? Mm -hmm. I'm glad you said that, that then we'll jump to Rinky, which is the plight of the dysphagia professor. For everything I do teach you, there are five other things that I just don't have time for. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it was last week in, in prep for this call that I thought, I need to have a binder for all the things that I can, it's almost like mommy's diary of her life and you send your kid <laughs> off to college with it. Like, you know, all the things you're gonna face in college that I won't be there for. You like hear moms who are like, they're dying of cancer and they're like, oh, you're gonna, when you're 21, this is gonna happen. They write this big long diary. I need to give you the, I'm gonna be gone to you diary because I was thinking, crap, I never got around to Fraser. Crap, I never got around to this. Mm -hmm. And they should at least know what it is. Um, so maybe that's something else, another resource for those mm -hmm. folks who teach dysphagia. Yeah, I think what's really interesting, I wanna add one thing, because it's just so funny having, the, having Andre here is that when I was in his shoes, I think I would have answered the exact same way hmm. that, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm like a seven probably going in. And like I said, it's you don't know what you don't know. And now looking back at Alicia at just after graduation, starting mm -hmm. my CFY, now reflecting back, knowing what I know now, I think I was a two. Oh, wow. You know, That's because you don't know what you she, don't know. She's just, that was a shots fired, Andrea. Like, yeah. I, I need you to be offended. Yeah, let's see where you, let's see where you like, feel. Like, she said you were two. Years and she was your yeah. TA for your class, so that reflects badly on her. Okay? No, I think, it's, I think it's just, I've, it's amazing how much I've learned in yeah. the past eight years about sure. dysphagia mm -hmm. that I'm like, there's no way, even in two classes from two of our top researchers in our field, like I was in the best situation, mm -hmm. you can only provide so much in two classes, one class, two classes. And I've learned not nonstop over eight years, like how do we, how do we prepare these students to be at a true seven, where they're really ready really where they're like fine-tuning from here on out not like oh my gosh there's so much out there i have so much more to learn yeah um rinky rinky jump in yes i didn't want to i didn't want to interrupt what you were saying and i think my i'm going to build off two of the things that alicia and andre said uh so just background i went to university of texas at dallas it was one of the top 12 programs I came from India, I didn't, like Andre, I didn't know we work with dysphagia, so I was really excited, and I was fortunate, I actually had four out of my six placements were with adults in medical settings. So I think that's that's definitely not the norm, and I had two dysphagia classes, so I had a regular core dysphagia curriculum and advanced dysphagia. And like Alicia, I felt like I was probably an eight or nine when I Ooh. when I graduated. My my CFY was in a long term acute care hospital, but when I first started working with that trick and vent patient, I didn't have an on site clinical supervisor. I was just scrambling. Like trick and vents were covered in one of the courses 
maybe half an hour in one of the lectures of my dysphagia class. And then I had to do a PMV trial and see if this patient could tolerate a speaking valve and if he could go from being on a feeding tube to eating. And I think that's when it hit me. Um, I, I just wasn't prepared at all. And my supervisor was on a I had to call her to see what I should be doing next with this patient, whereas really I know on-site supervision isn't a possibility for every CFY, but it's just, it's like Alicia said, you're told in your graduate class that, oh, you learn this in your externship. Most people have an externship at the end of grad school, so you're probably giving your praxis. Some, some courses have, uh, some schools have a thesis. You're scrambling to find a CFY job. You're graduating. How much are you going to learn in that externship? And then you feel like, okay, I have CFY to kind of figure things out. But if you don't have an on-site supervisor and someone's just available on the phone to help you, probably scrambling to meet their own productivity demands and, you know, Medicare and billing, and especially if you're in long-term care, CFY shouldn't be the place where you learn all these things for the first time. It's where you consolidate the information you've learned in grad school and lo- and figure out the best way to apply it. Preach, and girl. I don't want to... I don't want to just complain about what we don't have because we should talk about Why not? That's what this podcast appears to be about. <laughs> if we learn to think critically and apply that knowledge on our own right from grad school, I think we'll be much better off when we graduate. And we we have to know that there are things we don't know. There are things even the instructors don't know. But then how do we make the best of that situation? Right. So, um... I will say that when I graduated with my master's in speech pathology in 2000, um, wow, 17 years ago, just hit me when I said that number, um, I knew one half, one third maybe of what you guys know knew when you graduated without question because I think I only, I took the course because I found out that to graduate, I needed one more elective. And I remember my friend Gladys, so was like, girl, come take this dysphagia class with me. I was like, all right then. And that was it. Like, that was my decision. It was like, the, the professor is cool, so take this course. That was it. And I have to say, it's not like I was like, oh, well, gosh, I'm so glad I took that two-credit hour elective because now I want to be messing with somebody's airway because I'm so competent. I also never had one medical placement because they were primarily school-based. So I learned everything I know by reading on my own, by going to meetings, by talking to people. So it puts me in two positions. (laughs) I find myself going, gosh, I really didn't get what I paid for on one hand. On the other hand, it makes me go, but there's hope for anyone who wants to learn, right? It's not that I'm any more inherently in tune to dysphagia than anybody else. It's just that I really have a passion for learning and I found it interesting. Um, and I feel like obviously my knowledge has grown. I know something about dysphagia now, but for crying out loud, I didn't know anything. And it didn't take me 17 years to get here. And still 17 years out, I still have, I feel like I know half the things that I should know. So now I want to talk a little bit about the plight of the professor, because what I don't want this to be, because there are so many people who are listening who are going to say, I teach a dysphagia class, I pour my heart and soul into it, mm-hmm. and I don't know what they don't know all the time. I can't account for everything. So I want to say the problem starts in that undergrad is yeah. not where we start. It's, we can't blame the dysphagia professors in grad school because when I teach my course, I'm sitting there going, I should not be explaining why the pharynx and larynx are not the same thing. <laughs> 
And yes, in fact, that's what I'm explaining. And I worry that that's, that question will lead to the people who in CEU meetings that I give say, what is a pharyngeal stripping wave? And if you're listening and you don't know what that is, that's okay. There's information out there. If you type in pharyngeal stripping wave, a zillion things will come up on Google and explain it. So we don't have to even worry the way that I did. Was there, I mean, we were using AOL disks to get online through the friggin' like plug in the wall t- uh, telephone cord. By the time you typed in pharyngeal stripping wave, you woke up like drooling because you <laughs> fell asleep while it was loading. Right. This is not a problem anymore, okay? You can type in pharyngeal stripping wave on your phone, on your way to the car and learn about it, okay? So the information is at your fingertips. We just have to be at a point where we're willing to realize what we don't know. But undergrad is where we're supposed to learn this. Why undergrad? Because in undergrad is where we learn what's normal. If there's anything that we need to learn about normal on, it's dysphagia. Why? Because we came into speech pathology, and let me tell you, I know because I read a zillion admission letters because granny had a stroke, grandpa had Alzheimer's, I was born with a cleft. Everybody knows what was not right. Like, how come grandma doesn't understand me? How come I don't understand grandpa? And you can, a kid can tell you, he doesn't say the so-and-so right. So you know what abnormal is just by listening and interacting with people and so many everything in communication if someone stutters if someone has a voice problem you can typically hear it but you can't see swallowing and you don't know what a normal swallow is and even when you don't swallow normally because something goes down the wrong way you're not like all right my epiglottic didn't epiglottis didn't quite invert uh that time like you're not saying that because you don't even know what it is (laughs) some people think your epiglottis is your esophagus (laughs) so in undergrad is when we need to know what normal is so what does that mean? You come into grad school, you have to learn both normal and abnormal, and you have to put it into this clinical realm. It's too much. But then it makes you wonder, why don't these things overlap? We got anatomy and a speech and whatever they call it. I mean, speech and hearing or whatever it is, where you learned about the tongue, the larynx, the pharynx. You got all the structures. You even got respiration. But it has to be put in the context of swallowing. When it's put in the context of phonetics and articulation, you understand the tongue placement, and you can feel that when you say a t, a voice or a voiceless. You're like, oh, yeah, you're right. I do say a voice with D and not T. Huh, that's interesting. So you have your body to sort of, like, use an example. You don't have your body to use as an example with swallowing because you don't know what the hell's happening in there. So all of this really should start in undergrad, and grad school should be the place, as you guys said, to fine-tune, and then the clinical patients should be application on top of that. Can I make a bold statement? Make a bold statement. I feel really strongly that one, you know, we're really going to go back to some of the core problems. Everybody has to take a, mine was called um, neurogenic communication disorders Mm -hmm. or the neurogenics of communication disorders. And that was my anatomy and physiology course. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't feel that in undergrad, these courses are challenging enough. Ooh. Mm. Shots fired. I'm oh, just no, saying. No, no. Um, what I was going to do is I was going to catch the Holy Ghost, but then you said <laughs> shots fired. I got confused about where we were. I was like, are we in church or are we in a shooting range? <laughs> I didn't know. <laughs> I, I just feel really strongly about this, and, and there's a couple of reasons why I feel this way. One is I started out in a biomedical engineering program where my core like classes were hard as hell. I mean, I had to study so hard to pass these courses Mm -hmm. really, really hard because it was absolutely essential that I understood the basics of biomedical engineering 
like the like the back of my hand. I had to know it and understand it, not memorize it, understand it mm-hmm. really well. And when I transitioned after two years of you know basic biomedical engineering courses over to communication disorders, I was like, this is not spoon feeding. Spoon feeding. Yeah. It was spoon feeding, mm-hmm. and maybe I quote got all the information, but it was never. I was never challenged to understand it. It was mm-hmm. sort of like repeat it back. Here's to a me. bunch of resources. Mm-hmm. Repeat it back. The exams were easy, and this isn't toting myself. This isn't like a. But You're, when everybody in your class gets an A, yes, there's a problem. Okay, so you are going to just have me explode here. But first, I need to ask Andre this question. So you mentioned this before about um, teaching people how to think. So in courses where, in in degree programs where problem solving is inherent, right? Medicine, you're solving problems. A person's at the bedside, it's your job to figure out what's happening. If it's obvious what's happening, it's your job to figure out the right treatment, et cetera. Speech pathology is the same same way. We're diagnosticians, right? And we're trying to figure out what's going on, but just in a different system. So when we think about engineering, it's the same thing. It's problem-based. My view is that speech pathology, communication sciences, well, let me not talk about hearing because I don't know, but in speech pathology was not very problem-based. Now, I found that there were students, and this continues over the years in my classes in general, who say, I cannot believe I got a B on that test. And they're, they're so focused on making sure they get an A and that they are there's certainty, they need certainty. Uh-huh. If they ask a question, there needs to be an answer. Mm-hmm. And if I say there's no answer to this question, like what is the protocol for doing video fluoroscopy? Well, it depends on what you see. It depends on your clinical evaluation before getting there. Well, it depends on the medical chart. It depends on so many things. I'm gonna give you all the tools you need and make sure you know how they work. And then you put it together so that each patient gets individualized treatment. Mm-hmm. They want nothing to do with that at that point. And then, Whenever I talk about this in CEU courses, the clinicians go, you should have been my dysphagia professor. I'm like, you would have hated me. (laughs) You absolutely would. You don't appreciate it until you're out there like, crap, there are no answers to any of these questions. I actually have to know how to problem solve to get to them. There's no recipe Mm -hmm. to help me here. And if you want to see that, just go on any of the Facebook pages. You just say, I have a patient with this. What should I do? Exactly. Oh, good lord. I just That's need so much more there. information. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, it's like, I'm sorry, when sh- or what do I say, Rinky? Like, um, should I use Tylenol? That's the question. It's like, yeah. for yeah, or what? You know, even with language, it's the same problem. Like, I've noticed so many people will say, hey, I have a patient with expressive aphasia. What do I do? I have someone with a right hemisphere right. dysfunction. What do I do? But both those patients with expressive dis- um, aphasia could look so different because we really have to start breaking it down into their specific impairments and what they're presenting with because every patient who has fever doesn't have the same problem and can't just be given the same medication because the cause for it could be so, could be so many different things. And we're not encouraged to think that in grad school. We're, I almost feel like we're encouraged to look at this as a very black and white field with specific protocols and things we can just, you know, sheets we can just take out and have these algorithms ready to start treating our patients. But you know, speech language pathology is just the opposite of that. Yeah. I think people want to pay $50,000 for their master's education to receive the golden cookbook. <laughs> oh my gosh. You know what? What was exactly. that thing that Forbes 5 said that this is the, the third best de- master's degree to get? Now, obviously, they're thinking about economics. My view is if you're a speech pathologist looking for a job, that's because you either don't like what's out there 
or because you ended up at the back of the ASHA leader somehow. One of the two. Not because not because there's not a job. Like you might not want to deal with kids, but you're not going to go die in the streets under the bridge because you just couldn't find the job. It's because you didn't want that job. Mm -hmm. But it, to my my view, the best degree is one that opens your world to things, yeah. not ones that says, "Okay, you're done." You're never a master of anything at the end of any master's degree. You may have mastered the foundation. So what I mean is what the kids, what the kids, because I'm 17 years old. So what the students in the classes need to know is they need to know, hey, guys, this is the alphabet. These are the parts of speech. Now go ye therefore and say, say words together. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you what to say, but you don't, you have the basic foundation of how words are put together and how phrases are put together. But I'm not going to say them for you. I'm not going to tell you what to say. So that's where the anatomy physiology comes in. Can I jump in and tell you something interesting? Because I'm from a different country, right? And so in India, we there's no, own, um, there's no course only in speech pathology. You kind of do both audiology and speech. So when I graduated, I was an audiologist and a speech pathologist. And so if we have 10,000 people graduating every year in the whole country, we have very few programs, you'll see 9,000 becoming audiologists and then 1,000 people become speech. And I was very, very interested in seeing why everyone was running towards audiology because personally, I hated it. Um, and then people started telling me because it's so objective, like you put the headphones on, you ask them to raise their hand if they hear a voice, and basically you plot what they hear on an audiogram. Like it couldn't get more black and white and objective as that. And then why should we worry about then graduating and then figuring things out? Like we don't want to figure or field out. We want to go to work, show up, do what we're supposed to do, not have to think too much. I guess people just want a more comfortable, some people might just want a more comfortable job and they feel like the extra learning and having to do things on your own is more stress. And we've seen that on Facebook too. They say, oh, this isn't worth my time. This isn't worth the stress. It's just about their attitude towards the field and those negative attitudes kind of pass down so easily and they spread and, you know, it just takes one rotten apple to like spoil the whole basket. I wonder if I it's, Rinky, I wonder if, the situation is a, is compounded by several things. I think there are a lot of optimistic students in undergrad and grad school who just felt like they're going to go out and they're going to tease the problem out. It's going to be like goodwill hunting, right? Like you're going to have this person who needs you so well, and you're just going to go in and transform their brain, and they're going to say T for the first time, like I fixed you, right? But I wonder if what happens is it's a combination of realizing one, it's not that clear cut, two you have major productivity standards, and three, nobody gives a rat's ass about whether you get it right or not. So there's no incentive anywhere except for the mm -hmm. one that's intrinsic that you either have or you don't have. And sometimes I feel it's not just clinical world, it's also in research. I've mentored many people at this point, and I find that there are people who are exactly turned on by the thought of not knowing something and that they are challenged to go discover it and they might not get it right but they will have learned something about the process of learning to them learning about learning is everything and there are people who are like i feel lost if you don't tell me exactly step a through b because and that's just a different style of thinking those are people who tend to go into more technical jobs right they're the jobs where you go through and you know it doesn't mean they're low paying jobs they're very high salary technical jobs but there are strict protocols some folks that I know in the military love that strong protocol. They know exact. there's a protocol for every possible situation and they can be very highly skilled. Yep. But then speech pathology to me, it's not that, it's not a technical job. It's a job where you don't know what is on the other end of that screen until you figure it out. If you don't figure it out, no one else will and you have to find the satisfaction that you might not know and no one's, there's no accountability if you don't get it. Yeah. 
here's the thing that's so interesting to me is you take, you know, we mentioned earlier about, you know, standardizing our language and our practice with um, video fluoroscopy and take something like the MBSIMP, like we mentioned before. Mm -hmm. You don't have to be a speech pathologist to learn how to categorize impairment, mm -hmm. and you don't have to be a speech pathologist to rate the penetration aspiration scale. Mm -hmm. You've said yourself, I could get my 10-year-old to come mm -hmm. in and know, okay, when the gray stuff goes below that line, mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. this, yeah. right? And I consistently see in reports where people just list impairment, they list penetration aspiration, but don't tie it together. Like there's no assessment. You know what it is? It's the back of the self book. They're like norms equals 82 yeah. and 82 is this, blah, blah, blah. And but there's like, interpretation beyond yeah. that, right? I'm like, this is like, guys, a tech is going to replace our job if yeah. we keep reporting, keep doing this mm -hmm. because what we're the bread and butter of our profession is and why we have a master's degree and why we're licensed is because we know how to interpret those things mm -hmm. to make a recommendation and to describe what's happening and to rationalize it. And if you leave that piece out, then somebody's going to come in that you can spend an hour and, and teach them how to score penetration aspiration skills. So Andre, I have a question for you. And unless you were going to, were you going to say something else? I was going to say, ahead. it's not only just for, for the reason being replaced, but when that person, say, leaves acute care to a rehab hospital. Mm -hmm. I had that plenty, sometimes, where I'd go, I have no clue what's going on. They, they aspirated, <laughs> great, so yeah. what do I do with this? Or mm -hmm. Exactly. This, yeah. Well, so, I had this. So hold on, and, uh, um, Andre, the question I have is, mm -hmm. um, do you feel like as a recent graduate who is a seven out of 10 in terms of preparedness, um, soon to be a two in four years, according to Alicia. He's gonna be a two soon. So. Yeah, I know. Next FYI. week is like, so I'm a two already. But it'll be like two roads diverged in the woods. And you can either go the path of, well, this is the way we've always done things, or you can go the path of discovery and learning. She's trying to make up for it, but so here's what I have to say. Um, so the question is, do you feel like you've met during your clinical placements in grad school enough ranges of clinicians, they may not have all been your supervisors, but they're clinicians who you've interacted with and maybe learned from in some way. The gamut of people we're talking about here, have you met sort of the people who are the soldiers, the technical people who follow protocol, as well as the thinkers who are always sort of like probing and asking questions and encouraging you to ask questions? Yes, definitely. I've had, I've had one who was just, this is by the book, I want to do this. And that's the only way to do it. Mm -hmm. Or I don't know how to do it. You can figure it out. I've mm -hmm. had that. Where mm -hmm. I, I've had to go and figure out, oh, you should know what a PMV is, mm -hmm. first of all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, at a, at a nursing home, you should know that. Um, but I've also had plenty of, of, uh, of people who said, hey, you know, you need to figure this out. I'm not going to tell you the answer. Mm -hmm. You can go figure it out for yourself, and then I'll, we'll discuss it. I'm not going to tell you what my opinion is on mm -hmm. this. I want you to come and tell me. Do you have a preference across those spectrums? I definitely like the latter. Yeah, okay. I, I'm definitely more of a, I want to figure this out myself. I'll ask you a question and say, hey, this is my thought on this. What do you think? Mm -hmm. let's, let's, let's work on it together. Because if, if I just ask them what their opinion is, I'm going to start believing what they believe. Right. Not this truth. You know, right. There is, there is an objective truth out there right, right. For, for this. And if we just always believe what one person believes, you may not, it may not be perfect. Right. You know? And I think this all comes down to student learning being more of a problem-based approach as opposed mm -hmm. to whatever it is now. I'm sure there's a term for it that I'm not thinking of. But just the idea that um, we should encourage, uh, it's almost like you want to say, okay, you've, we do this now. You've gotten into grad school. Grades matter to get in. We get it. Um, but 
now that you're here, I need you to abandon that because mm -hmm. I always say you learn from what you got correct on the test, but you also learn from what you got incorrect on the test. It's about getting the information. Yeah. It's not about making sure you get a 99 because nobody asked me what if I took a dysphagia class, much less what my grade was in it. Now, I'm not saying no one will ever ask anyone when they go for a job for it. But at the end of the day, if you can ask answer every single question that they ask you with adequate or above adequate answers and you got a B or even a C plus, it doesn't even matter because you're outperforming the person who maybe got an A minus and doesn't know jack crap about anything. this up a little bit and summarize a couple of points that we've kind of been on our soapbox about which I live on my soapbox about this topic so uh, forgive me but I think we agree that you know in our field problem-based learning is really essential because that's what we have to do every day with patients and this idea of cookbook therapy is just it just doesn't work in our field. Rinky I'm gonna put you on the spot if you could design how dysphagia was taught in graduate school, you can dip into a little bit of the undergrad. What is the ideal situation? Like, would it be four dysphagia classes? Would it be you only take dysphagia for two years? Or what would the curriculum Would it be its like? own degree? Because this has nothing to do with communication. I've heard that too. Mm -hmm. I've spent some time thinking about this. Honestly, I don't think dysphagia needs to be its own, like, I mean, because you, you have both specialty certification, you could have a postgraduate course, but I, I do think we should have the option of choosing between a medical SLP and a school-based SLP track, because I feel like two years as a medical SLP would then cover enough of not just normal swallowing, but just normal anatomy and physiology, because like we know everything's so connected. I want to know how the brain influences my swallowing. I want to know how the GI tract influences my patient's swallowing. So I think if I could have specialized for two years just doing medical speech language pathology, I hope people listening don't hate me because I know many people like doing both. But if I had a choice, that's what I would have liked to do. And I, I think having more just active learning and student engagement, if I had labs in grad school, if I had had um, more patient simulations and kind of known how to apply my theory to practice right from the graduate level, I wouldn't have had to figure all that out um, on my own as a CFY and then four years later thought that my nine was actually a two or a three like I just think and, and reading evidence-based practice so I think if we had been taught to appraise literature and know that you know every research paper isn't the right answer but just try to figure out how can I take the information from that research and apply it to my practice and think critically about it if those skills were instilled in, in me in my graduate program I think I would have been a much more successful clinician right out of grad school Hmm. Andre, how would yeah. you design your whole undergrad and master's differently? Huh. I like how you added the undergrad in there. You kind of yeah, in there. <laughs> yeah, definitely. You definitely have to have some sort of. I, I know how you talked about maybe throwing it in with the anatomy class, but I do think it needs a, its own separate entity, just because there is so much to it. Um, mm -hmm. Because it's, it's an anatomy and a physiology. So mm -hmm. when you go through physiology, that's going to take forever. And if you're going to try, it, it does. If you're going to go through that and then try and add that on to all this other anatomy, it's not, I don't think that would work too well. So maybe, uh, maybe a, a physiology course in, in undergrad, but then in, in grad courses possibly have a, you can choose to have a health track, quote unquote. So you still have all the other ones, but maybe one or two elective courses that you can choose. So mm -hmm. advanced dysphagia or even advanced cognitive rehabilitation. 
So maybe, or one or the other or both. Um, because then you can also have a lot of hands-on training as well. Mm -hmm. I've never done an endoscopy. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. something that I would love to have had practice before I had to go over to the VA Fair. where they do it all the time, right? Mm -hmm. um, so there's all these things that definitely there's the practical side, but then um, just having all these questions where you can even think through, mm -hmm. like, hey, come to class, bring a question that you have. Mm -hmm. We can discuss it and, and try and figure it out. Yeah. yeah. Alicia, what would you do? Well, um, I mean, a lot of these th themes are very similar, but what I keep thinking about is do we have enough people to teach these courses? Right, so yeah. we're gonna have four classes in dysphagia. Okay, that you're was not, a, that you're was. You're not a, doing research anymore. You're teaching five dysphagia classes, mm -hmm. right? Actually, I don't agree with that. The reason I don't agree with that is because physicians don't need to take fifty classes on the eyeball. Right. Right. Even I'm sure if you go into is it optometry or Gosh, ophthalmology, yeah. I always forget which is which and which does which is in the mall and which guy's not in the mall. Right. <laughs> but um, the point is that. Um, Unless you're going to uh, doing a residency, and even then they're in they're in the patients' rooms all the time. They're not just sitting there taking lecture after lecture. So I think that there is probably a way to get expertise to people. But at the end of the day, if you take a beautiful seed and you plant it, and this is going to sound harsh, and you plant it in concrete does it matter how good that seed was? Right. And what I'm, I'm not at all saying that the students that we have are concrete. I don't believe that. But I think their learning style is mm -hmm. one that is concrete. It's not fluid, it's not soil, where it's bendable, moldable, right? It's concrete in terms of what they expect. They expect you to say, here are my Lego brain parts. Assemble them and send me on my way. Tell me if I'm a building, am I a house, am I a flower? Right. Set me up and put me out there. If, right. if I'm a flower, then put me in the field. If I'm a building, then put me on the street. Meaning if you're in education, set me up for that. If I want to do medical, set me up for that, which is kind of where you guys are. But I think that it starts with the kind of student that we set up. I don't care what student, I don't care. Honestly, I could be in voice right now. I could be in language. I could be in cognition. Whatever it is, I was going to be an expert. That's what I decided because that's the way I approach things. Yeah. And not everybody's me, not everybody's Alicia, not everybody's Andre and Rinky, but I think that you can set people up to be yep. the best thinker they can mm -hmm. be, and then no matter what you throw at them, they can do something with it. Yep. It's not, I mean, the people who are interested in engineering probably spent their childhood taking their toasters apart and their things apart, because yep. you want to know how things, things work. But at the end of the day, no matter how you get in the field, we need to be thinking about GREs in the analytic scores, which are gone, and not if you can friggin' solve for X. I have solved for X once in, <laughs> in 17 years, but the GRE math scores matter more than if you can actually put a paragraph together on the spot. Mm -hmm. So I feel like our admission criteria are setting the stage for where we are now with what is a pharyngeal stripping wave, yeah. and the fact that there is fear associated with not knowing how to problem solve and not being found out. Yeah. Because you are a master's in, you have a master's in this. Why don't you know that? Yeah. Well, part of it is because you weren't set up to learn in that fashion, mm -hmm. which is on the fly, get it together, and, figure it out. And how do you know that if you were never challenged? I mean, exactly. In the in the when the master students or when the undergrads apply to masters, they all have 4.0s. Yeah. None of them ever had to face that challenging environment where they were forced to have to problem solve, and there's no. I don't think real great system to... So are you saying if somebody has a 4.0, they've never been challenged? No, that's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that a lot of the courses in undergrad, I think, are not challenging. Mm -hmm. And every, you know, a lot there's a lot of 4.0s that apply. And how do you 
parse apart those students. Well, I understand what you're saying because on one hand, how is it possible there are so many 4.0s, but there's so much... I'm not even going to say that because that will definitely get me fired. But there, but how are there so many 4.0s, but there is so little ability to think on the spot? And so that's the concrete versus the fertile soil, right? Mm-hmm. That soil can grow a mustard seed, a mustard plant, a tree, or it can grow a tulip. It just depends on what it's giving. I can work with anything. But if you have Lego blocks, because that's what you've been given up until now, you can only, you have three bumps on you that's all you can connect to that's it so I think unfortunately people have been set up to to view thinking in a certain way Mm -hmm. I want to I have dibs on like selling my book one day with all your Inessa Inessa-isms and like all your analogies (laughs) and noting them down and I'm gonna sell it so nobody else do because that's my idea (laughs) Um, no problem can I I get 10% I wish you could see my face whenever you say all of this your analogies are amazing and I, I think like tying it back to and building off that, I'm just tired of people, okay, you know, you haven't, you've been, you've been the concrete and now you want to grow into this beautiful flower, but just stop complaining about all that's not working in the field and all that's not working for you and how you have it worse than someone else. And I feel like people now almost take pride in having something not working for them and then they don't want to be told that they don't know something like why can't everyone just say okay we're in this together Hmm. so instead of making it worse for the students who come after us at least let's be mentors and supervisors to them and help them have better futures as clinicians and help them kind of improve the field for all of us like it doesn't have to be a competition of who has it worse (laughs) i just think the complaining needs to stop Because it ends up being this, like, well, it must be nice to have fluoro. It must be nice to have these. I'm out here in the trenches. And, like, what do you want from me? Like, and it's, it, it is. It, it's like, I I have it so much worse than you do. And, you know what it and, is? It's like everyone's oh been through World Lord. War II but you. It's like, back in my day, I had to drink out of a dirty mug, and you've got a water fountain. You're freaking complaining. <laughs> it's like, okay, I'm sorry, you have water fountains. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I hear what you're saying, but I think, I, you know, I think part of what you're saying, Rinky, is you are the field. It's not the field is over there. It's not ASHA needs to do it for us. You exactly. are the field. You are the field. There's more. It's that grassroots movement that needs to happen more yeah. so than somebody please come and save us. We need a savior. A savior will never save you because you're not ready to be saved. You know why? Because you don't think you're savable. That's part of the issue. The second you think you're savable, you can actually go, okay, I'm savable. Step one is I'm going to go on to PubMed and download one paper a month and read it. That is step number one. But to get people to do that is difficult, which is why bringing it back to the class and the students didn't like this. I did not have a textbook because I want people to know how to read the literature because that is enduring. Not that I have a problem with textbooks. I think textbooks are great. And I even say, if you would like to go and buy a textbook, you have not hurt my feelings. Please go buy one. But the textbooks are built off of the literature, but they're giving you their version of, I want you to read the paper. So I have a series of review papers, original science. Some things are sort of other online resources. There are amazing reviews about almost everything Mm -hmm. in swallowing. It's just the second you start expecting someone to start reading literature after they've already graduated and now they have 90% productivity, they're looking at you like, are you crazy? No, I can't. And if we could just get rid of one mentality, it's the, okay, I read five papers, so East him or not? Yeah. (laughs) I know. It's like, oh my good Lord. It depends. I know. Problem solve. It's, 
you know, get that mentality ingrained within you. Yeah, but like, sh- so, so should I use no? these <laughs> or not? Well, you know, but wait, 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 wait. But, but where did that start? So was this going to be on the test? Yeah. So is this going to be on the test? Right. That's where it starts. The people who are obsessed with the grade are obsessed with, so what do I need to know to do this right? Mm-hmm. They want to do it right. They don't want to learn about the process. Yeah. Andre. Oh, yeah, I was just thinking, those are the people I was just like, come on, just stop asking the questions. Just learn what you can. You're here to learn it. Just try it and just at least understand concepts. If you don't understand the specifics of everything, understand the concepts because that's what's going to get you through it all yeah yeah and what's so hard you know is i think that unfortunately this lack of problem solving and stuff where where it really hits people are the cfy supervisors Hmm. it is a task that you undertake that is enormous (laughs) i mean because you are challenged to to teach problem solving to these clinicians that have no idea how to do that and one of the problems with it is there's really no incentive aside from the gratification of teaching and I think that that's a real problem in our field that a lot a lot gets put on these supervisors to really teach everything Mm -hmm. and um, people don't have to do it think of all of our um, students right now that I mean, are just having enormous trouble trying to find CFY placements, especially in medical placements, where they can get that experience. And training is, is difficult to right. get in these fields. And it's I think that that's a major, major problem in our right. field. And education doesn't end when you graduate. Right. So... Just my okay. therapy company across the, across the state has said we're not... I'm not even across the state, across the country... They said we're no longer hiring CFs because obviously they feel like it's just, I don't want to get into their reasons for doing it. They probably have their own business-related reasons. But I just think if hospitals and companies and facilities start saying we want people with experience, we're not going to hire CFYs, how are those people ever going to get experience? It's a huge problem. I mean, from a business perspective, hiring a CFY is not a good business move it's really not i mean you're you're paying a salary to somebody that's not giving you productivity until months in yeah because a lot of times they're not ready to see patients independently for a while Mm -hmm. which goes back to our whole conversation productivity gets hit so essentially you're losing money so to speak on two people on two people yeah it's a that's a major problem i think it would Mm -hmm. be different if students out of their graduate program had more training and more experience Mm -hmm. that when they got to their CFY, they just needed light supervision. They needed to have that fine tuning, Mm -hmm. but it's not. So much pressure gets put on, you'll learn this in your CFY, you'll learn this in your CFY. That's a good point. And that's partly the issue with people. You know, it's funny because that's the same issue with the undergrad to grad bottleneck. It's clinical placements within your grad placement. Mm -hmm. It's not that my dysphagia class has a little less than 30 people because our department accepts a little less than 30 people. I could teach 60 to 70 right. people. The issue is they need to have one-on-one supervision with somebody. Yeah. And there aren't enough somebodies out right. there who I mean, have the ability to do that. When students finish medical school and they say, I want to specialize in cardiology, they don't get to their cardiology internship and say, so his heartbeat's real high <laughs> and I exactly. don't know what like, to do. Yeah. Where the where the little clampy things to open his chest? I want to yeah. do I want to do that. That's thing. not the case. They're so well prepared before they get to that specialization phase that they're 
it's fine tuning. But don't you think that that is the underlying issue? That this is a yes. this is a medical problem. Yes, it is a medical problem. I'm not saying that stuttering doesn't matter, or voice doesn't matter, or cognition doesn't matter, and that they don't have medical components. I am saying that swallowing is under that true. Uh, category of a medical problem and has nothing to do with communication yep. right so if it has nothing to do with communication we know it got brought into our field because people were doing it anyway <laughs> right? right you know what I mean so it's just like well we're doing it so we might as well get married shoot <laughs> we're together right so then you end up having something that you really can't prepare people for it probably should have been its own field yep. where GIs ENTs nurses everybody had some stake in so then you don't show up you know at the hospital thinking other people know more about swallowing than you you find out crap you don't know jack crap and neither does a physician or right. the nurse depending on where you go many physicians don't like i was in my, i was in a trach and vent units and then we had a laryngectomy patient come in and my physician was confused between a laryngectomy stoma and a trach site and then I had to do an in-service with the staff explaining the difference between a tracheostomy and a laryngectomy, which could essentially kill that patient if someone had gone and like thrown water down there or tried to suction him out of his <laughs> yeah. stoma. And then the physician comes back to me and says, oh, do you mind if I kind of like stop by and attend the in-service? <laughs> I was two years out of grad school. I mean, I was just shocked that the, like, yeah. this is the state of affairs in an acute care hospital. Oh, yeah. I like, love in, in June yeah. when all the med students become interns. It's that, like, turnover phase. And your co the amount of consults you get for bedside evals on patients that are intubated, like, doubles. And you're like, <laughs> oh, time for education. <laughs> I know. So, okay, I would like everybody to, we'll do a round robin. and want everybody to say something that they don't understand. Just tell me something you don't know that oh you don't God. understand. Oh, so hard, right? You're like, oh, all these brains in the room, all these Lego blocks. <laughs> well, I'm a 10, so <laughs> I know. Really exactly. Right <laughs> and the reason is because we need to be very clear that we don't know everything, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Because there are a zillion things we do not know, yeah. or there are concepts we don't understand. I can start. I have, I feel very ashamed of myself that I know nothing about feeding disorders in children. And mm -hmm. I, I think I would really enjoy working in a NICU. I want to start building my skill set in that area, but I, I feel like if I'm a swallowing disorder specialist or, or even if I'm someone who's an expert in that area, I should know about swallowing across the lifespan. And I think I've only worked with people who are over the age of 30 years of age. I think that should be an area that we should have more training in. Pediatric dysphagia can't be one class. Like it has to be so much more than that. And I think that's something I would really like to kind of gain more knowledge and um, a set of skills, like a skill set. And I really want to learn to work with the pediatric population. Hmm. Mine's going to be real specific. <laughs> but I have become sort of obsessed with how much I realized I didn't understand what components of airway closure really matter, right? So the we know that... Um, the tongue is involved, the pharynx is involved, the hyoid is involved, the larynx is involved in making sure that the arytenoids touch the base of the epiglottis and we protect our airway. It's one of like the essential pieces of airway protection, but I don't understand what components are most important. Does the hyoid really matter? Do patients that have poor um, lingual function, how much does that really impact laryngeal vestibule closure? I, I find it really interesting 
as to how little we actually know about this mechanism that's so vital to protecting the airway. And that's sort of what I'm obsessed with right now. And if I was going to say one thing, it would probably be cancer. Because all mm. we really hear about is head and neck cancer, head and neck mm -hmm. cancer, head and neck cancer. Mm -hmm. And that's not the only cancer out there, as far as I know. That's not the only cancer out there. And so there's all these different types of cells and the way they manifest themselves. Mm -hmm. How does that affect our swallowing ability? Mm -hmm. Right? It, it happens in the brain. So what type of cancers would affect it differently? And in what areas or what regions and what type of cells would that... So there's, there's, there's just a plethora of reasons cancer can mess us up. Hmm. Um, I will say that I do not understand, and it sounds like I should, and I thought I did, and then last month came by and I was like, crap, I don't know that anymore. I don't understand the role of the oral cavity on pharyngeal swallow. It seemed so obvious to me. And then I was like, yeah, a big bolus goes in and a big swallow is planned. But why? Like how, when, where, where, where does that happen? Like it's almost like this black box that things filter through <laughs> and they just come out, ring! big swallow for big bolus. <laughs> but like, when, what's the ring? Like what is that, right? And in fact, is it the oral cavity? Because the last time I checked, it's not like I picked up, you know, a cookie and suddenly it turned into a hot dog in my mouth. I knew what it was. Is my oral cavity just saying, confirmation, you put a cookie in your mouth. Confirmation, you put a banana in your mouth. It's not like the oral cavity discovers it for you mm -hmm. and says, she thought she had a banana, but pharynx, it's really a hot dog, okay? Deal with it. So, so what's the like, point? Would you like blindfold them and then say, hey, let's <laughs> see, try this, see this is you're, you're a good study design person. You see, <laughs> yeah. you're thinking, and that's exactly what you do. So, well, right, that's a way to probe through the question. Well, and that, So the reason I was saying that, asking you guys these things is because for everything we said, there's an answer out there. And some is some, like in your case, Rinky, um, the feeding thing, there's a lot of papers to even get you started, right? Alicia's going to have to do that work herself. And in terms of cancer, there's a zillion things you can read. And for me, I'm designing a study to answer that question. But I ask these questions because learning doesn't stop, mm -hmm. despite the fact that we're here, you know, talking about all the things we wish more people knew. There's a lot of stuff that we don't know that right. could be essential. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but I just want to thank everybody for being willing to talk about this. I'm really hoping that the listeners take this um, just as something to keep in their back pocket. Um, it does sound like we have a massive cube to push uphill, not even a ball. We have a cube to push uphill. But the point is that we all need to just get our hands under that one side of the cube and lift it together. That's the point. And the, the more that we get together and are willing to learn together, and someone maybe can teach me about the oral cavity. I'm open to learning. Um, but we need to be open to learning, and we need to be open to sharing what we know with others. All right. Thanks, Rinky. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks again for joining us. I'm ending with one of my favorite Alanis Morissette songs, You Learn. It totally encompasses our discussion. Plus, I think it's so cool that she tells us to swallow this jagged little pill of the challenge of learning in life. Until next time. Swallow.